All of us love to hear stories of faithfulness, don't we? Uh, One of my favorites is a story of Hachikoto. It was a Japanese dog who lived in the early 20th century. Hachi, as his owner called him, was born in 1923. And he belonged to Isaburo Ueno, a professor of agricultural science at Tokyo University. Um, Professor Ueno had always wanted a purebred Japanese Akita dog. And once he adopted Hachi, the two were inseparable. Hachi would go with the professor every morning to the train station. He would ride the train to work. Uh, When he came back that afternoon, Hachi would be there waiting for his master, and they would go home, and they just really, truly were inseparable. Uh, And then one day on on May 21st, about two years after he had been adopted, May 21st, 1925, Hachi was two years old. Professor Ueno suffered a cerebral brain hemorrhage while he was at work, and he died suddenly. Uh, as normal, Hachi went to the train station, waited for his master to come back, and he, he never arrived. Uh, one of Professor Ueno's gardeners took him in, uh, but Hachikoto continued to make the trek to the train station to wait for his master. Every day, for 10 years, he would go in the morning and in the afternoon, precisely when the trains were arriving, departing, and he would look for his master. Well, about seven years into this, uh, in 1932, a Japanese newspaper got wind of this story, and, and they, they did a story on Hachi, and he became a national celebrity. In fact, he became the symbol in Japan for faithfulness. And people would come, and they would feed him treats, and they would love on him, and um, in In 1934, they erected a statue of Achikoto, and he was actually there himself to to, to be there uh, for that. But in fact, we have a a fairly rare photo. This is one of the days that he was waiting for his master to come back. So there's there's a a picture of Hachi. Uh, But even to this day, they have... uh, a mosaic in that train station uh, with, with his you know, image up as part of the mosaic. He actually has his own museum that you can go to and, and learn about Akita dogs, but especially about Hachi. Uh, I think everybody is inspired by this. It's a bit of a sad story, a bit of a heart-wrenching story, but it also is inspiring because of his unending faithfulness. He never stopped being faithful to the very end. Today we are in Revelation chapter 7, and Revelation 7 is a story of God's faithfulness. It reminds us that God never stops being faithful to his promises, and specifically to his people. We've been in Revelation for the last several weeks, and last week in chapter 6, we saw the opening of the first six seals. So the wrath of God comes through a series of three different judgments. It starts with the opening of the seals. uh, And then we'll move next week into there are seven seals. Then there are seven trumpets. And then after that are seven bowls of God's wrath. And each one of them gets progressively more severe as time goes on. So we went through the first six seals last week. But chapter 7 is a bit of a parenthetical chapter. We get to take a break from wrath today for a week. 
And chapter 7 just reminds us, and, and another thing to keep in mind, Revelation is not necessarily linear. It's not necessarily chronological. So don't read it as this happened right after you know, it was in the, necessarily the order it comes in the text. But this is giving us a glimpse right there in the middle of the wrath of God. John, the writer, stops and says, but let's remember who God is. Let's remember the faithfulness of our God. It reminds me of Habakkuk 3.2, which says, there's a little phrase in that verse that says, In wrath, remember mercy. That's Revelation 7. In wrath, God is still remembering his mercy to his people. So let's begin. Revelation 7, let's start with the first seven verses. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed... 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. This chapter begins by saying that there were four angels who were holding back the four winds of the earth. The four winds representing winds coming from each direction on the earth. And whenever you hear four winds mentioned in the Bible, you know something significant is about to happen. A lot of times it has uh, reference to some type of judgment. For example, Daniel chapter 7 speaks of four winds churning up the great sea and out of the sea come these beasts uh, that that are churned up by the four winds. Um, There's the famous passage in the book of Ezekiel, which we have been in. And if you are like one of our church members said, I'm so ready to be done with Ezekiel. We're almost there. Uh, We're moving on to something soon. But Ezekiel is a bit hard to, to trudge through at times. But Ezekiel 37 is one of those chapters we read recently, the dry bones coming to life. Um, but that, that's a little bit more encouraging one there. But it says that, that Ezekiel is told to prophesy to the four winds and to tell them to, to come and, and these bones take on uh, flesh and, and, and come to life. But bottom line is this. Anytime you see that phrase in the Bible, the four winds of the earth, something's about to go down. Okay? And it's going to be significant. Whatever it is. So what we see here is that these angels are holding back the four winds of the earth. They're holding back the judgment of God until the servants of God, it says, could be sealed. They are going to receive this this seal on their forehead. And the seal indicates ownership. Just as a seal would if it was used to seal a letter or something like that. That seal indicates who that letter is coming from or who the owner of it is. Think of it maybe in terms of a cattle brand. You know, that, that, that an owner would brand cattle so that if somebody saw 
um, you know, a cow out on its own or whatever the case may be. And they could look at that and say, okay, we know who the owner is. We know who this animal belongs to. The seal that is placed on the forehead just indicates ownership. It's saying that these are sons and daughters of God. They belong to God. And so he says, don't let the four winds come until they have been sealed. And once they are sealed, what we'll see is, even when the wrath of God comes on the earth, those that are sealed are not subject to that wrath. Now, there's going to be some impact by it, right? Just by the nature of the things that are coming. They are going to be impacted in some way. But they are going to be protected from the specific uh, harm that is to come on everyone else. It's real similar to what we see happening in Exodus 12. Uh, in Exodus, God brings judgment on the Egyptians because they have enslaved his people, because they refuse to let them go. And you remember there were 10 different plagues, and these 10 plagues kind of similarly kind of got progressively worse and more severe over time. Well, the final, the 10th plague was the plague on the firstborn son, and every child, every firstborn son in every home was going to be put to death. But God told his people before that was to happen to make an offering, take the blood, put the blood on the doorposts of their homes to indicate that they were you know, followers of his. They were covered in the blood, which there's a lot of imagery there. And when the angel of death came, he would pass over those homes. And so we celebrate even today the Passover when God spared his children and brought great wrath on all the other homes. It's real similar to what is happening in Revelation chapter 7. So who are these servants of God that are sealed? There it says there are 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. They represent the 12 different tribes, sort of. And I'll get to the sort of here in a minute uh, because that's an interesting thing to look at as well. Um, but contrary to the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, this is not the number of people who will be saved and go to heaven. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses teach there are only 144,000 that make it into heaven. And then, as we'll read in just a little while, uh, once they passed 144,000, they thought, uh-oh, what are we going to do now? So then it, it began to include what comes next, and that is this great multitude. So the teaching is there are 144,000 that are actually in heaven, and everyone else that is a faithful Jehovah's Witness is, is part of the multitude on earth, but they don't quite make it fully into heaven. That's not what it's saying here. It's saying very specifically that there were 12,000 from each of the, the tribes mentioned here who are sealed. These are Jewish people, and it's very clear from the context here. He's talking about specifically, not there's not a spiritual Jew kind of a thing. These are literally people of the, the, the nation of Israel from the different tribes, and God knows who they are. I know the tribes have kind of been lost and all that, but God, God knows who they are. It's not, no, no problem for him to bring them back. Um, that's, that's who these people are. They're people who came to faith, or who will come to faith, during the Great Tribulation. And that's not too far-fetched to consider that they have the background. They, they know the Scriptures, right? And they probably heard who Jesus, who some claim Jesus is. They don't believe it, but then the church is raptured, and they, they, they realize, oh my goodness, Jesus really is the Messiah. So they come to him in large numbers. They come to faith. Um, but what we see here, back to faithfulness, what we see is the faithfulness of God on display. All this time, God has not given up 
on his people and the promises in Scripture. Go back to Romans 11, for example, verse 1. It says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So he clearly is talking about the Israelite people when he says God did not reject them. Then a little bit later in chapter 11, verses 25 through 27 says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, this deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That phrase there, all Israel will be saved, it's obvious from the context. He's talking, it's not a spiritual Israel. He's talking literally about the nation of Israel because he said there was a hardening for a period of time so that the Gentiles could be brought in. But the time is coming when they will be brought back into uh, the fold here and all Israel will be saved. Meaning, I would read this passage, not every single person who is an Israelite will be saved because they still have to come to faith in Christ. But what he's saying here is all these tribes are represented, right? So in that sense, all of, of Israel will come back to faith in Christ. I think that's what he's talking about here in Revelation Chapter 7. Now, if you're paying really close attention, and maybe you've studied this before, if you read this for the first time and you picked up on this, then you definitely get like three gold stars today. Um, but he's, he's listing out the tribes of Israel. The, the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel come from uh, the 12 sons of Jacob. And if you go back and trace those, you'll, you'll see that the sons were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Uh, it can get a little bit confusing at times when the, the land is being divvied out because you sometimes see Manasseh, who is mentioned here, and Ephraim mentioned in among the 12 tribes. Uh, that's because the Levites, who were the priestly people, did not receive an inheritance from God, an inheritance of property. It says that the Lord himself was their inheritance. And so Joseph who was faithful to God in a unique way, was blessed to have a double portion of inheritance. So both of his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, take on inheritance. So uh, Joseph basically gets two because the Levites are not included in the distribution of the land. That makes sense? So that's where you see that. However, you might notice here that it mentions Manasseh and Joseph or Ephraim. So somebody's left out. Anybody know who's left out of the list here? It's the tribe of Dan. Now, if you want an interesting something to research, Google why was the tribe of Dan left out in Revelation 7. And you're going to get all kinds of, of different theories. You're going to get all kinds of ideas of why they would have been left out. Uh, one of the, the, the ideas is that because uh, in the... Um, Judges 18, I can remember exactly where that was. Judges 18, it talks about how this tribe of Dan had begun to worship idols. Um, and, you know, maybe this was a result of that or a consequence, a punishment for that. But if you go back to the blessing 
that was pronounced, that Jacob pronounced on each of his sons. Really, really interesting. This is the so-called blessing. How would you like for this to be your blessing from your father? Genesis 49, verse 17. This is what he says to his son, Dan. It says, Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. Thank you, Dad, right, for that wonderful blessing that you have bestowed on me in my future. But this is, it's, it's just really interesting to see the tribe of Dan. Now, we're not told, a lot of people will believe, one of the things that you'll see if you research this, there are a lot of people that believe that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan, and maybe that's the reason that the tribe is left out. Uh, bottom line is, I, I would, if you were to press me on it, I would say it has to do with their idolatry and just a consequence of that. But the bottom line is, we really don't know for sure. The Bible does not say specifically why this tribe is not mentioned, uh, but, but they're not. What we do know is that God has kept his promises to his people. And I would not read this as that means that there will be no person whatsoever from the tribe of Dan who is saved during this period, um, but that there is something significant here. There is some type of um, lasting consequence on that tribe as a result of, um, well, God's choice, but that, that's got to be tied to something. It just doesn't mention specifically what it is. Now, as we read on in verse 9, I, I want you to do something here. So we've, we've got this picture of uh, those that, that are sealed. Okay, So these are people still living on the earth. They are believers during the time of the tribulation, but they've been sealed by God. They've been given protection from God in a unique way. And then it goes back to, kind of comes back to the picture of heaven. And I want to read verses 9 through 12. I want to ask you to do something I don't think I've ever asked you to do before. I want you to actually close your eyes and not read along with me this time. You can have your Bible open and look at it later. But here's what I want you to do. Sometimes we need to feel and experience the Word of God in a different and unique way, okay? And I just want, the, the, to the best of your ability, just close your eyes and just listen and try to put yourself in the place of this happening, the sounds, uh, the sights, just everything that goes along with this, all right? Let me read this to you. Starting in verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, isn't this an amazing sight? Can't you just imagine what that would be like to be in the presence? And, and one day we will be in the presence of God. Those of us who are believers and know Christ will, will, will experience this ourselves. But what an incredible picture of God, this faithful God being worshipped for who he is. And I think my favorite part of that is this emphasis once again on every tribe and language and people and nation. You may recall back in chapter 5 that we, we read about that a little bit. And, uh, and again, this is, this is bringing that back to mind. 
But ultimately, Jesus is being worshipped here as the Lamb of God. Salvation belongs to our God, verse 10, and to the Lamb. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now remember when John first had the vision of Jesus and he was weeping because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls and, and, and one of the elders says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he can open the scrolls. And it says that John looked and he didn't see a lion, he saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so there's this, again, sacrificial picture of who Jesus is as he is being worshipped in heaven. He is being worshipped here as the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice who shed his blood. Back to, you know, by, by your blood you purchased people from every tribe, language, nation, people. That's, that's what we see here um, is that Jesus is being worshipped as our sacrifice. And it's really interesting that it says, one, they were clothed in white robes. We see that frequently representing the purity that, that Christ brings to us. Um, but it also says that they had palm branches in their hands. You know, this is the only other place in the Bible outside of what we refer to as Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The only other time that palm branches are mentioned. The other was John 12. Well, it's mentioned in several Gospels, but I'll give you one example of that same story mentioned in different places. John 12, 12 and 13 says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. See, this, this was a way to celebrate victory. That's what palm branches were all about. They were, they were a celebration of victory. If you go back to even the Festival of Tabernacles, which is um, specifically uh, for the, the purpose of remembering God's faithfulness, delivering his people out of Egypt. It says in Leviticus 23, verse 40, On the first day you are to take branches from luxuriant trees. Palms, willows, other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. They're rejoicing over God's deliverance of the people. That's Old Testament. That's uh, this festival. Revelation 7, they're still rejoicing over God's deliverance of the people. But it's not just delivering them out of Egypt or out of physical bondage. They're rejoicing now that they've been delivered from spiritual bondage. They're rejoicing over the salvation that belongs to God and to the Lamb. And they're just giving giving praise for that. And one of the things that stands out to me as I read this is just how utterly God-centered their worship is. You might hear that statement and say, well, duh. (laughs) It's worship. It's supposed to be God-centered. Yes, it is. But that's not always how we uh, see things in our culture today. You know, as much as I appreciate the the emphasis on intimacy and worship, right, and and passionate worship and all that, that just personally really resonates with me, and that has been very impactful in my life and my own personal spiritual development and has played a really significant key role for me, and I know it has for many of you. And so I appreciate that. I appreciate this emphasis on worship being more than just, you know, solemn and, and, and that kind of thing. However, here's the danger to that. The danger is... That, that worship can begin to be viewed as something that is for the benefit of the worshiper rather than something that is to be expressed to God. Worship is not about us. 
mean, I love the fact that when we worship, we are blessed by that. That is, that is a, um, an effect of that, and that's a good thing. But guys, we need to be reminded, worship is not about us. It's not about our preferences and what we want and how we feel. Worship is about God. It's about um, Him being the center of attention. And that's what we see here in, in all throughout the book of Revelation, but especially in chapter 7, is that God is the center of all attention and all worship here. All right, let's keep reading through the end of the chapter. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. John says that, that one of the elders asks him, who are these? All these people, this great multitude here that is described, who are they? And John has no idea, he doesn't know, and he's like, he doesn't try to come up with an answer, or you know, he says, you know. You tell me, you, you, you know the answer to that question. The answer is, he says, they are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That word out of would be an indication of this is the church that is pulled out, right, on the front end of this tribulation. The church is raptured, meet the Lord in the air. They have come out of this great tribulation. It says that they have, they're, they're, they're wearing white. Their robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Made them white in the blood of the Lamb, which is very ironic because we tend to think of blood as soiling things. Try to get blood out of something white, and, and that can be a bit of a challenge, right? But in this case, it's what brings purity. Again, reminds me back to, to Revelation 5, verse 9, where it said, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's who this is. And it said that from every tribe, language, people, and nation. These are the ones who have been purchased, who have been ransomed by the blood of Christ. And they have, this the church, has been pulled out of this great tribulation. And then look at what their reward is, what they get to experience. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. Now let's, let's just stop there for a minute. Let me ask you to be honest. How many of you are being really honest, and, and nobody would say this out loud, but would think, is that really the reward that we get for being faithful to God, is that we get to serve Him 24 hours a day, you know, day and night? Anybody look at that and say, that, that doesn't sound like much of a reward. I mean, what about my mansion in heaven, right? Isn't that going to be my reward? Well... The reward really is for them that they, they get to serve the Lord. They get to be in his presence. It says, um, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They won't be hungry or thirsty. Boy, this one sounds good, doesn't it? The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. Now that, that hits home right now. Anybody else as excited as I am, by the way, that after today, we don't see the 90s again anywhere in the extended forecast. I'm just unusually excited about that. But we need that, that shelter from the heat. But we can relate to this, right? That the, the, the God himself is providing that shelter. 
God is the one who is taking care of his people. And it says that, that it's his presence that is so powerful here. You know, if you've experienced the presence of God in a very tangible way, you know what this is like. You ever been in somebody's home that was just really had the gift of hospitality and really knew how to make you feel welcome and cared for, and you didn't want to leave? You ever had an experience like that? It's like, man, I just I feel so good here. I feel so loved here. I don't want to leave because of the way I'm being cared for. If you've ever really experienced the presence of God in a powerful way, there are times where you just don't want to leave. I mean, I can think of times where, where, where I've been in a, in a worship environment or even just off on my own somewhere with God, and it's like, I, I just, just don't want to leave. You don't want it to end, right? Like, you just want to stay in the presence of God. The reward that the people of God, that the saints get is you don't have to leave. You don't have to leave the presence of God. Now, I know that the presence of God goes with us everywhere that we go, but there's got to be something unique about physically being in the presence of God. You know, one of the things that was the hardest part for me coming back from sabbatical this summer was the fact that, um, you know, I know that I can still be in the presence of God here and working and in the office and all that, but I missed just having those longer times of, you know, whether it's just taking a long walk, being with the Lord, whether it's time away in the mountains by myself for several days, just, you know, nothing but me and God. That's that's a special time, right? And we need those times, uh, those unique times like that. But when we get to heaven, that's all it's going to be, 24-7. Yes, we'll be serving God, but we'll be in his presence. And there'll be nothing like it. It says, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. We've been in the book of Ezekiel recently and um, earlier on, in the book, there, there was a place where it talked about the shepherds were not taking care of the sheep. And God says, because the shepherds, the ones, the, the spiritual leaders are not taking care of the sheep, he said, I am going to be their shepherd. Jesus said that in John chapter 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. Isn't that remarkable? That God himself shepherds his people, shepherds his flock. The lamb will be our shepherd. He will guide us to springs of living water. And then this famous phrase, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's not the only time this phrase is used in the book of Revelation. We'll come back to it again another time. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And we'll end on that note. Because that is such a picture of intimacy. Wiping the tears from someone's eyes. It's a very intimate thing to do. I mean, I'm just going to tell you right now, if some dude tried to wipe the tears from my wife's eyes, we're going to have a problem, right? Because that is, that is something very personal. That's something very intimate. That's who God is. That's what our relationship with God is like, that he leads us to these waters. He, he takes care of us. He feeds us. He gives us water to drink. And in our time of sorrow... God is so present in such an intimate way that he just tenderly wipes the tears from our eyes. It's a beautiful picture of the tenderness of Jesus, but can I also remind you, this is the same Jesus who is coming back as the, the victorious king. 
You see, the reality is that this, the same Jesus who is this tender shepherd is also the fierce warrior. It's the same person. We get to choose how we experience him. If we choose not to place our trust in him, then we experience his wrath. And it's not, it's no joke. It's a big deal. And I don't say that to, to be overdramatic. I say that to just be honest and to warn us and to realize if we don't follow Christ, we're going to experience that fierce warrior. Uh, and it's going to be awful. But if we do trust him, then we get to experience this tender shepherd who wipes away every tear from our eyes, who cares for us and, and just meets every need that we have. And church family, my prayer is that every one of us would be on that side, that we would be those who know him personally and who experience him in that type of intimate way and allow him to be that, that good shepherd that wipes every tear from our eyes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are the good shepherd. Thank you that you lay down your life for the sheep. We don't deserve it. Lord, you deserve our worship. You deserve to be the center of all of our focus and energy and attention. Not just when we come to church, but every day, every moment. My prayer, Lord, you're on your throne, but I want that to be evidence in my life. That you are on your throne and that, that, that I'm submitted to you. And that's my prayer for us as a church family. That we follow you wholeheartedly and give you the worship you deserve. Because you are so faithful. In your precious name we pray. Amen.